Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Good afternoon. Um, thank you for braving the cold weather and joining us today. Um, welcome, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, for those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. William McCahill joined NBR as a senior resident fellow in July 2016. His work focuses on Chinese politics and policy. Before joining NBR, Mr. McCahill has worked in Hong Kong and China as the senior advisor for China at Mirabad NC, a Swiss <coughs> private bank headquartered in Geneva, and earlier in a similar, similar capacity for Religar Capital Markets. He had previously co-founded and managed a China-focused equities and macro research firm, opened the Beijing office of a major American law firm, and operated a business consultancy in China. A 25-year foreign service career preceded McCahill's business activities. He began his diplomatic service in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Beijing, subsequently held senior posts in U.S. missions in Western Europe, Scandinavia, and Canada and in 2000 retired from his last posting as Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. His academic background inc includes degrees from Boston College and Harvard University in theology, English, and history of religion, and Sanskrit and Indian studies. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful uh, obituary. Uh, just one correction. I first went to Hong Kong as my first Foreign Service post at the age of 16. I was brought in a bit early in the Foreign Service. So. Just, just kidding. Um, anyway, well, thank you very much for having me here. Thanks to Larry, who's an old, old and dear friend, and to John and the company that I've just met. It's a, it's a great honor to be here and uh, see one of my alumni association in the back there. Uh, and so it's, um, anyway, it's quite, a, it's quite an opportunity. I thought um, this, is, this presentation I saw has been announced as a lecture, um, but really it's more of a talk, uh, I think. Or better yet, if you'll ask me some questions, it could turn into a conversation. And it's divided, like Caesar's Gaul, into roughly three parts. It starts with some caveats, or as we might say in the new vernacular, trigger warnings. Um, and then there are some comments, general comments, on leadership qualities and the Chinese Communist Party's corporate culture. And third, I'll try at the end to uh, relate some of what we've talked about earlier to our current debates about American policies towards China. So let's get started. Uh, Roy and I drove over here from NBR, but I do know that about 15 or 20 minutes walk down the street um, in the National Galleries is one of the world's greatest collection of Impressionist paintings. So if I may borrow that image, 
what I would offer today are impressions of the Chinese leadership. And they're formed from having observed the country's leaders from the late 1970s until the present. I've met many of them, and I've spent hours in close conversations with several of them. But not that I would pretend to any artistic talent, but you might think of this as a sort of the little pointed dots from a Seurat or the swirls of Degas, efforts to paint a reality that they had experienced but somehow found hard to describe. Nor would I pretend to be a scholar of China. While I have formed some impressions of Chinese leaders, I have not studied them with the discipline and the dedication of, say, a Professor Cheng Li, nor have I read the Chinese media so closely and assiduously as has Willie Lam. So these Sinologists' work <clears throat> has helped us all to understand the political factions and the patronage networks that explain so much of the Chinese leaders' behaviors. Alas, with me, you just get what you paid for. It's a superannuated diplomat's ramblings across an important but imperfectly understood subject. And so today's Chinese leadership, who they are, <clears throat> how did they get where they got, what makes them tick, and what makes them talk. So, um, living, when I was living in Beijing about 10 years ago, from living there about 10 years ago, a friend of mine, <clears throat> who is a genuine China scholar, and I thought that, and I, together, we thought we might write an essay on Chinese leadership. What sparked our interest was the rise of Xi Jinping. In 2009, Xi was a member of the Communist Party's Politburo Standing Committee. He had been named the state vice president, and in that capacity was traveling extensively outside China, as if as part of his grooming for higher office, he was being exposed to a world of which he knew relatively little. But Xi was the anointed one, and borrowing, barring a coup d'etat, Xi would become the party general secretary at the 18th Party Congress in 2012, and state president when the NPC met the following March. How did she happen, my mate and I wondered? What claim did she have on these positions other than being the son of one of communist China's founding fathers and having worked long stints in the provinces? So as simple-minded foreigners would do, we betook ourselves to the multi-story book emporium, the Tushu Dasha, at Xidan, where Democracy Wall had once stood and we went looking for books on leadership. We thought we might find those in the management or self-improvement sections, as one might in an American or a British bookshop. And sure enough, there were shelves of management books, managing innovation, managing for success, managing the future and such, all pirate translations of well-known foreign titles. There was nothing on self-improvement, which didn't really surprise us. After all, this was a state-run bookshop in the workers' paradise, and how could Chinese socialist man possibly be improved? There was, however, an aisle-marked leadership. And there we'd be sure, we thought, we'd be sure to find a Chinese Jack Welch's version of Six Sigmas, or a compendium of Chinese classics, or translations of Machiavelli, or maybe even a pirate translation of James McGregor Burns' famous treatise on leadership. But maybe we were in the wrong aisle. 
for all that we could find in the leadership section was academic rubbish. The shelves were filled with third-rate university presses publications of third-rate professors, compilations of such BS as great speeches of the great leaders and the great leaders' great speeches and so on. The sort of unread and unreadable crap that wins tenure and preserves perks across much of Chinese academia together. Thank goodness that at that time, China was still importing waste paper from the Western United States. So perhaps we should have been, we should not have been though, surprised by what we found or didn't find in the bookshop. For the millennia of Chinese history are rich with reflections on statecraft and governance. There are the precepts of Confucius, who contended that if a ruler governed virtuously, his subjects would live moral lives and his kingdom would be harmonious. There is the legalist tradition with its advocacy of stern laws and regulations to keep order in the kingdom. Xi Jinping makes no secret of his sympathies for that school of philosophy. Philosophy aside, Chinese history holds tales of mighty kings and emperors who serve as role models for present day politicians. The great Xing emperors, Kangxi, Yongzheng, Qianlong, represent for many Chinese a high point of imperial governance. For even if those rulers were Manchu, not Han, their reigns saw China expanding at peace and so prosperous that it attracted Europeans' envy. Previous party central committees have even studied this trio of Qing emperors to learn the secrets of their success. Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor who unified China, standardizing the written language and much else, even as he buried scholars alive and burnt their books, was said to have been a man that Mao Zedong hoped to emulate. And it certainly seems that Xi Jinping idolizes Mao, who himself wrote an essay on leadership, although it was more intended for running political purges than for governing the nation. So even if it occasionally rhymes with itself, Chinese history holds ample lessons in leadership. Still, my scholar friend and I were challenged to list the qualities of Chinese leadership. So we turned to our own Western template, drawn from our experiences with leaders in government, the military, and corporations. The template included traits such as courage, a kind of modest self-confidence, the ability to motivate others, command presence, intelligence and knowledge gleaned both from formal education and hard knocks, curiosity, initiative, decisiveness, listening skills, and a willingness to correct course when mistaken, even a certain ruthlessness, a recognition that conflict was inevitable and enemies would be made. Would it be fair to judge Chinese leaders by those criteria, or were there other standards more appropriate? And how, in any event, could we possibly see inside the black box of how Chinese communist senior leaders are chosen? These opaque procedures mix the mystery of the College of Cardinals choosing a pope with the Gambino families deciding on their next dawn. So who were the people that we had observed leading China? Where did they come from? How and where had they been educated? How had they risen through the party ranks to their leadership positions? What motivated them? What, what attributes of leadership did they show? All were 20th century Chinese communists, of course, and hence shared to one extent or another the party's colors. 
They were, to one extent or another, organization men, or in a very few cases, women, and hence shaped by the party organization. But they were also individuals with individual life experiences, even though we could hardly find a kind of psychobiography of any of them. Now, the Chinese Communist Party claims to have some 90 million members. Like the quick and the dead, some party members are more active than others. But suffice to, suffice to say that the membership reflects that old Chinese proverb, the forest is large and contains all manner of birds. Lin Zida, Shamanyao Doyo. From the cosmopolitan mandarins who run the People's Bank of China to the rural county road inspector who thrives on garlic, white lightning, and foul cigarettes, across the government agencies and military units that are so densely populated by party cadre, and throughout the public services like schools and hospitals, which employ millions of party members, a common corporate culture prevails. This corporate culture inculcates a set of personal behavior traits that include something like the following. First, an obedience to the party hierarchy, deference to the organization, reluctance, second, reluctance to express your own views, to show your attitude, to biao tai, until the leader has shown his attitude towards whatever the issue is. Some of you may remember that until Xi Jinping personally endorsed Carrie Lam, the Hong Kong chief executive, a week or so ago, not one single senior Chinese official had Biao Tai, had shown his attitude on the Hong Kong protests, which had then been going on for some five months. Third, there is perfecting the art of self-criticism. That's the party's charade of confession and absolution learning how to say just enough to sound sincere without admitting any real mistakes. Finally, there's a readiness to socialize with party members outside the office, where the decisions really get made, in boozing and schmoozing with the boys. Female party members, whose numbers have been dwindling, seldom join the lads after hours. So today's senior leaders are really products of this corporate culture. The organization men. Conformity has chased out charisma, if not erased individuality. When a cadre does not dye his hair jet black, his gray head stands out from the crowd, or he's in the dock in a courtroom on trial for corruption. How did our friend the no-nonsense Wang Qishan make his mark when he became the mayor of Beijing during the SARS epidemic? He wore a French blue shirt and snappy tie while all his colleagues stuck to their white shirts and their black golf jackets, the party's penguin uniform. But putting aside, however, the corporate culture and fashion, let's look at some basic building blocks for a Chinese communist leader. Take pedigree, a man's lineage, his or her family's relationships within the party, or in today's vernacular, his background, his Beijing. Without background, you can't get a good job today, many young Chinese will say. For some contemporary figures like Xi Jinping or Bo Xilai, background means having been born to the purple or to the red, to fathers who had fought in the communist revolution and founded the People's Republic. These are the sons of the red nobility, the Hong Ar Dai, 
Not all aspire to party leadership, of course, but almost all share a sense of entitlement. The keys to the kingdom should rightly be theirs. One influential founding father, Chun Yun, who became Deng Xiaoping's most vocal sparring partner in the 1980s economic reform debates, famously said that only the children of the first generation of communist leaders should be entrusted with governing China. And sure enough, Chen Yun's son, Chen Yuan, came to head the China Development Bank, which is the regime's off-budget, bottomless treasury. Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, was a contemporary of Mao and held senior government posts in the early decades of the People's Republic. Mao dismissed the elder Xi in 1962, but Deng returned him to duty in the 1980s. One of Xi's boyhood friends, boyhood chums, was Bo Xilai, the son of first-generation Politburo member Bo Yibo. Bo the elder remained prominent even as his ambitious and flamboyant son rose through the party and government ranks. But Bo's, Bo Xilai's ambition and flamboyance and his barely conce concealed rivalry with Xi Jinping undid him. And he now, with his white hair, languishes in jail. For Bo Xilai broke that key precept of party conformity, respect the organization. He was, as the Chinese proverb puts it, the bird who stuck its head out of the bush. Xianda chu tongyao. Wang Qishan might not have had a famous father to guide his fashion statements, but he did have the first generation luminary Yao Yilin as his father-in-law. Jiang Zemin had no claim to blood, bloodline red nobility. Rather, he was brought into the party and mentored in the organization by the venerable Wang Daohan, who was the longtime mayor of Shanghai and the kingpin of East China. And it was Deng Xiaoping who elevated, who elevated Jiang to the general secretary's throne in 1989, lending him a kind of legitimacy that Jiang seemed to sense he didn't really deserve. For Jiang's rise came at the expense of the fall of Zhao Ziyang. A famous photo of Jiang, in a famous photo, uh, Jiang Deng and the party elders gathered at Deng's house in Beijing in the summer of 1989 shows Jiang literally sitting at the right hand of the father and studiously writing down every one of Deng's words. What does all this amateur Pekinology mean for American relations with China today? Across the current administration, in both houses of the Congress, broadly within the American business community, although there are some prominent exceptions, there is a wide and growing consensus that China now represents a strategic competitor to the United States, a generational challenge, if not a threat to American security and welfare. Voices across the political spectrum call for a complete reevaluation of the American relationship with China, for limiting or severing commercial, educational, cultural, and other ties that have grown up over more than 30 years of U.S. engagement with the People's Republic. To the point, my home institution, the National Bureau of Asian Research, has just published the results of a major year-long study on the Sino-American relationship. Its title is Partial Disengagement. So what's changed? A well-known U.S. Sinologist recently asked that question of one of China's foremost America hands. 
What's changed? China has changed, replied the Chinese scholar. And so the U.S. could not but change in response. The most obvious change in China, and the key to all the others, has been in the country's leadership. The senior leaders with whom engagement was designed and built during the later 1990s and the early 2000s, the leaders who brought China into the WTO and oversaw the double-digit GDP growth rates, those men left their party posts in 2002. Excepting Jiang Zemin, who retained the military commission chairmanship for a time, they retired from, private from public life. So China has seen three, three generations of leaders since the later 1990s. <clears throat> While there are similarities among these three leadership generations, they're all Chinese communists after all, the differences may be more profound. Profound enough that China's governance in some respects has shown less continuity than has American leadership over the same period, despite our having elected both Republican and Democratic presidents in those years. For the basic institutions of American government have not changed, even if each president has tried to put his mark on them. Such is the rhythm of our democratic governance. It's not so in one-party China. And that has to do, I think, with the striking, one might almost say, revolutionary differences in the formative experiences of China's three different generations of leaders. The differences include formal education, but they also arise from the wider cultural and political environment, from what the comprehensive word, French word formation connotes. It's all those subtle and not so subtle influences of family, economy, and society that combine to form an adult human being. Zhu Rongji, the State Council Premier and the head of government with whom Ambassador Barshevsky and other American cabinet members, not to mention American presidents, spent countless hours of negotiation and discussion. Jiang Zemin, Party General Secretary and State President, who regaled American senators and CEOs with his renditions of 1940 Broadway musical tunes, tunes and recitations of the Gettysburg Address. Chen Shi-chan, the cosmopolitan vice premier who directed China's foreign policies. These men had all grown up in Republican China. That is, in the Republic of China founded by Sun Yat-sen in 1911, and eventually in the late 1920s, the 30s and 40s, led by Chiang Kai-shek until Defeated by the Communists in the Civil War, Jiang and his officials fled to Taiwan. That was a, chi that was a China that, however afflicted by invasion and war, held a large visible foreign presence, notably in commerce, education, and medicine, and showed an openness to the outside world that has not been seen since 1950. When Zhu Rongji enrolled at Tsinghua University in the fall of 1947, he entered an American liberal arts college. Tsinghua had been founded by Americans, funded by the U.S. share of the boxer indemnities, operated on an American curriculum, taught by American other foreign and Chinese professors. It aimed to prepare its graduates for direct admission to American graduate schools. 
its alumni were and are famous. Its liberal education promoted curiosity and critical thinking. Chen Shichan, though he was born near Tianjin, Tianjin, or as he used to say, in the Chinese Republic province of Ruhe, Chen Shichan grew up in Shanghai, and he was educated in the Anglican Episcopal schools there, culminating in St. John's University, whose diplomas were recognized as American college degrees. Jiang Zemin, from a modest merchant family in the Yangtze Delta, learned his engineering at Shanghai's Jiaotong Dashia, the prestigious MIT of China, which had been founded by the Qing imperial government, but on Western models, and with half its faculty and administrators foreigners. While Jiang remained in China after graduation, and even in 1947 considered moving to Taiwan, to work on national government engineering projects there, many of his classmates joined U.S. or other foreign companies and found themselves abroad when the communists took power in 1949. So Jiang, Zhu, and Qian, this trio formed the core of China's leadership in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Although they were from disparate family backgrounds, and of course they hadn't been spared the sufferings of World War II in China, they had grown up in a China with not only a vibrant and visible foreign presence, but also a lively and mainly uncensored media, a dynamic literary and artistic scene, an entrepreneurial if sometimes exploitative private economy. There was Nanking with its stately government buildings and its broad tree-lined boulevards. That was the capital. Shanghai, teeming with humanity from all over China and across the globe, was its center of commerce, literature, art, intrigue, and loose living. In the Chinese Republic's free market of ideas, these three men chose to become communists, just as some of their contemporaries and classmates followed Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT to Taiwan. Others became the Hong Kong tycoons, on whom Jiang, Zhu, and Qian relied when the, when the British colony reverted to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. Still others made brilliant business and scientific careers in the United States or in Europe. On the Chinese mainland, that China came to an end in 1950, and its vestiges were quickly eradicated through the Communist Party's subsequent campaigns to expropriate private property, to pursue rightists and counter-revolutionaries, to silence intellectual critics through the Hundred Flowers campaign. Whereas in Republican China, newspapers, including Communist Party papers, ranged across the full political register, after 1950, only the monotonous party papers were published. There might have been different outlets, the People's Daily, the Guangming Daily for intellectuals and academics, the Liberation Daily in Shanghai, the Workers' Daily for the party-controlled trade unions, but they all looked alike, and they all carried the same content. As Republican China gave way to Communist China, Western business people, academics, medical doctors, Christian missionaries, and others left of their own volition, or they were expelled. Some were jailed and then deported, who were encouragés les autres, as we say in French. The institutions that those foreigners had founded, operated, and financed were expropriated and nationalized under party control. 
The doors that had once been open to Americans, British, and their allies slammed shut when the Korean War broke out, and the Communists mobilized the Chinese people to resist America and aid Korea. What foreign influence that remained in China came in the form of Soviet advisors to the new people's government. They introduced Soviet-style central planning, aiming to reform Chinese capitalism into Stalinist models. In the national capital, which had now moved back to Beijing, economic bureaucracies proliferated into planning agencies and trade commissions and scores of ministries. This new system left no room for private capital or private enterprise. Industrial production, with targets set from Beijing, took precedence over the consumer economy, and countless small merchants lost their businesses only to become state employees of their former companies. In the universities and colleges, liberal education was shunned in favor of engineering and technical training. What history and literature teaching remained was filtered through the communist sieve. Those who control the present now control the past. Scholars and other intellectuals deemed politically unreliable were purged from faculties and research centers, with many of them sent into grim internal exile. Even the dress code changed as the colorful traditional garb, like the women's chipao or European pinstripes, were deemed to be bourgeois luxuries and unisex clothing molted into baggy pants and four-pocket Sun Yat-sen suits offered up in gray, blue, or green. To be sure, a nationalist fervor accompanied these changes in the economy, cultural life, and social mores. The Civil War had finally ended. The nation was at peace, at home at least. Economic recovery was well underway. GDP began to grow again sometimes dramatically, from low levels to low levels to which economic activity had sunk. New China, as the communists continued to style their regime, was at first, and for many people, not an unhappy place, unless you happen to have been designated in one or another undesirable category, like a landlord, a KMT reactionary, an imperialist running dog, or so on. Compared to Republican China, the communist New China enforced political, ideological, and even cultural conformity. Citizens who conformed could get ahead in this new poor, fair states. Nonconformists really had no place. So to use today's cliche, this was the new normal. And it was in that new normal that the next generation of China's leaders, the cohort headed by General Secretary Hu Jintao, and Premier Wen Jiabao came to maturity. Hu, Wen, and their contemporaries had been born during the Japanese invasion, and they had their early schooling in Republican China's traditional classrooms. But their secondary and tertiary, tertiary education had been in the new Soviet-style curricula. While many of this age group received excellent technical training, including at Jurongji's alma mater, their formation did not include the questioning and critical thinking that had been inculcated by the Western liberal arts curricula. Hu Jintao, for example, graduated in 1964 from Tsinghua University's Water Conservancy Engineering Department with a specialty in hub hydropower stations. Well, hydroelectric power was certainly crucial to Chinese industrial development. 
but one didn't need to have read Plato or Shakespeare to get a credential in running a power plant. Wang Jiabao trained as a geologist in an institute created to staff the new Ministry of Geology and Natural Resources. Like Hu Jintao, Wang Jiabao spent his early career in hard scrabble provinces in the western parts of China. But like Hu Jintao, one soon found that political engineering was more congenial than smashing rocks or channeling water. And so both men moved up, moved up through the party ladder through directing party organizations, who in the Communist Youth League won at the party central committee's general office, which he ran through all the tumult of 1989 and the Tiananmen massacre, serving both the deposed general secretary Zhao Ziyang and Zhao's successor, Jiang Zemin. The communist, Chinese Communist Party were reality TV. Wang Jiabao would be the star of Survivor. But this new normal of the People's Republic, in which Hu and Wang had come of age, did not last very long. For by 1966, Mao had launched his great proletarian cultural revolution, and China again sank into chaos, this time provoked by its own emperor. As Mao, his wife, and their henchmen uh, triggered political campaign upon campaign, the national economy ground to a halt. Schools and research institutions closed. Millions of young people were sent from the cities to work in the countryside, and violence verging on civil war raged across the land. The Cultural Revolution, following on years of famine and natural disaster, was itself to last more than a decade. And its effects remain with China today, as the lost generation of barely educated revolutionary youth move into their old age. Xi Jinping, who this year is 63 years old, belongs to that lost generation, at least in the chronological sense. Though born into the red nobility, Xi's pedigree and his privilege could not entirely save him from having his formal education truncated at middle school. In the numerous hagiographies that have recently appeared to buttress the personality cult being built around Xi Jinping, Xi credits the Shanxi peasants with whom he lived during the Cultural Revolution as his wisest and best teachers. Suffice to say, there were no Encyclopedia Britannica volumes in those farmers' homes. When in 1975 Xi matriculated at Tsinghua, the famous famed university existed really in name only. And she had been admitted not through the rigorous national college entrance exams, which didn't resume until 1977, but rather for his political fervor under the worker, peasant, soldier, student quota. Of course, his dad's buddies might have helped him behind the scenes. After all, he was, so to speak, a legacy candidate. Xi Jinping's undergraduate training in chemistry, though, could not remotely compare to the well-rounded education that Zhu Rongji had received at Tsinghua 30 years earlier. Freshly graduated from Tsinghua in 1979, she landed a prestigious post as secretary to the defense minister, thus giving him not only a military record of sorts, but plugging him into the inner circles of party politics. Dad might have helped him with that, too. The rest, as the cliché goes, is history. Perhaps embellished somewhat, now that Xi Jinping presides over the Communist Party and Chinese state, with ostensibly more power than any figure since Mao Zedong. 
So hard as it might be to identify the career building blocks with precision, those blocks that when they're put together luckily produce a Chinese leader, family background, formal education, advancement through the ranks, one thing is clear. Timing is everything. That is, each of the three generations of Chinese leaders with whom we Americans have dealt over the past 40 years is a product of his time, of the historical era in which he came of age. This seems an obvious, if not trite or even nonsensical thing to say, but it holds a truth. For the era which bred Jiang and Zhu and Qian could not have been more different to the era in which Hu and Wan matured, nor could that second period have been more different to the times of Xi Jinping's youth and his young adulthood. If Jiang, Zhu, and Qian grew up in technicolor, Hu and Wan were raised in a thousand shades of gray, and Xi Jinping in black and white. As young men, that first generation of leaders lived in a China where Chinese and foreigners mingled easily, where foreign ideas of all colors circulated freely, where liberal education taught students how to see things from the other person's perspective and how to judge issues critically and objectively. Who in one might have gained technological prowess in their education, but their worldview had been blinkered by xenophobia, ideological conformity, and Maoist class struggle. And Xi Jinping, despite having been born to the purple, grew up in a culture that was even more deeply impoverished and tightly constricted, not to mention laced with dangers to himself, his family, and his friends. So when we Americans, if not other Westerners as well, look back on our dealings with these men, it is small wonder that we found Jiang, Zhu, and Chen, perhaps especially Zhu Rongji, such congenial interlocutors, because they were all three bridge figures. They were cultural bridges between that little part of our world uh, that had been present in Republican China and the communist China that they had come to represent many years later in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. In their personalities and their affects, they engaged us in familiar, if sometimes hard to pinpoint, ways. Zhang's entertaining us with renditions of his Broadway musical tunes. It was his way of narrowing the social distance. Chen Chun's verbal subtleties and his understated manner could have come straight from a State Department or Foreign Office style sheet. Jew's irony and his self-deprecating humor were vehicles for the insights of his Rolls-Royce mind. To one degree or another, they all fit into that Western paradigm of leadership that I described a few moments ago. So we were intrigued, impressed, even seduced by these men. But we also allowed ourselves to be seduced, even as we sensed the seduction. For at some level, we believe that, these, that what these men hoped to achieve for China coincided with what we hoped China would become. We might have been at least partly right. For example, Jews' willingness to open China's market to foreign investment stemmed from his eagerness to free the Chinese economy from its stifling central plan and shift it to a more open and robust market. These were, these were only three men among tens of millions of party cadre, state bureaucrats, and stakeholders, and stakeholders in the status quo, of course. Many of those stakeholders, maybe a plurality, 
oppose those reforms, and their resistance continues to this day. But in the way that Chinese emperors defined and gave name to their reigns, so did Jiang, Qian, and Zhu define an era, an era in China and a memorable phase of America's relationship with China. We were naive in imagining that that leadership trio would be followed by similar, if not more, cosmopolitan leaders, and that there would be a kind of linear progression from reform to reform, from openness to openness. Our mistake, our cardinal error, was not reading Chinese history carefully enough. The generation of Jiang, Zhu, and Qian represented a unique transition from Republican China to Communist China. And now we face a new era of new China, but we should have seen it coming. Thank you. Everyone's completely convinced by that. No questions. Yes, sir, with the baseball cap. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the cadre evaluation system in particular and how systematic incentives are applied to the party leaders uh, from the top down. And I've heard specifically that there's they're trying to change from uh, more specific incentives on GDP growth to less uh, exact measurements like well-being of people. I'm wondering what second order... There is... Well, I'm a bit cynical about this stuff, as you can imagine. Um, but there has been a, there has been an effort uh, begun, really under Hu Jintao, uh, to sort of broaden the evaluation criteria for the for cadre to introduce what a man who's now in Purda, the Yuan Chao, called intra-party democracy. Somehow have a a more holistic, a more holistic judgment on the individual's performance, one that wouldn't just be quantitative and turn on GDP growth, and tax receipts, and jobs created, and so on, but speak to environmental questions, public health questions, the quality of education, and so on. I think there's that's been in, implemented more in the breach than in the observance, and the chief proponent of that, of course, is now on the on the outs. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a bit like the old conundrum of turning an aircraft carrier around in the harbor. How do you get from this quantitative system to one of qualitative judgment? And you probably haven't had the pleasure or the torture of having to write a foreign service officer evaluation, but I can tell you it's <laughs> there's some nodding heads in the back there. It ain't easy. To, to, to find all these adjectives and to get the right nuance and, and fairness. And so uh, for those in the personnel system in the party who are genuinely serious about this, there's certainly been an effort to try to, to try to approach it. How it is actually used in promoting, it's certainly used to some extent in assignments. You can see that, I think, in the way that people move around and there's been an effort even at fairly senior levels to um, to broaden the career experience of um, sort of promising cadre. Think of um, uh, Guo Shuqing who is uh, he's effectively the head of the central bank. He's the, he's the party secretary of the bank of the, the whole financial apparatus. He had run a bank 
in an earlier uh, phase of his life, but then he'd been governor of Shandong province. So there is that kind of effort to, to give these people a sort of broad base of, of experience. My own, um, my own sense is that so much still depends on personal networks, who you were in school with, uh, whose back you scratched back then. I mean, when I sit with my communist friends, and I have some, um, they all know to the nth detail who is in what county, who's been moved from here to that province, who's, doing, who's now the Fu Sejong and the Sejong in this ministry, and, and, and so on. Um, this is really what they follow, and it has a kind of air of, um, of court intrigue about it, as much as it does objective um, uh, criteria. Your question reminds me of one, one time years ago now, I came to know very well the personal, the private secretary of Li Lanqing, who was in the Politburo Standing Committee and was a vice premier for a very long time. Li, uh, Li's quite a cosmopolitan guy, he's a very good pianist and patron of music in China and so on. Anyway, so his private secretary and I were having dinner one night and it was just after one of these Fortune magazine publications of the most livable cities in America had come out. And Pittsburgh was at the top. And this guy had been to Pittsburgh. In fact, his son was a student at Carnegie Mellon. And um, he said, you know, how do, we, how do we do this? He said, how, do you, how can you tell that Pittsburgh, how does Pittsburgh get these, how do you, how do you take essentially quality of life data and somehow quantify those? And he said, if, if, if we could square that circle, we'd be a lot better off here. Because he said, you know, you just, just look around you. I mean, look at Beijing with 24 million people. It's an unlivable. Uh, not to mention, you know, such urban gems as Zhengzhou or Hefei or places, places like that. How do you do that? Very, very difficult. You would have seen the article in the Times or the Washington Post earlier this week about a city in Henan, I believe. Uh, where the local party secretary, in emulation of you know, copy, copying what he saw, thought was happening in Beijing, they, they built a sports stadium and they built an art center and they built this and it, and all off these local government financing vehicles which would bankrupt the locality. And they're all, the white elephant, you know, doesn't do them justice. The man in the green jacket. <laughs> um, as we saw from the, I'm Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst, uh, a former diplomat. Um, as we saw from the uh, the Me Too movement, you can only buy off people for so long before the sins are exposed. And I look at this problem in Western China as being buying off uh, all the world's Muslims. Uh, but I don't think it's got legs. I think at some point the Ummah says, no, you don't get to lock up two million of my brothers mm. for the sole purpose of removing their religion. No, you don't get to knock down 1,200 religious facilities, including all the Qurans that were inside the dust. Mm. And no, you don't get to bulldoze um, Muslim cemeteries that are you know, 1,500 years old. You don't get to do that. So, so I'm wondering, within the party leadership, what strains thought this was a good idea? <laughs> Is it is it a military kind of thing, or is it a, a, a strictly party thing? 
this literally has the potential in the longer term to break the party. Mm. If not a Muslim invasion of Western China. Well, I think, frankly, um, much of it originates with Xi Jinping himself and his own securities. And I think if the, if the Communist Party has a soul, it's a deeply insecure one. Uh, it's never been sure of its own legitimacy in some respects, despite power growing out of the barrel of a gun and, and all the rest of it. So there's a kind of core insecurity there. And I think Xi Jinping comes with a fair amount of personal insecurity. And you look at, um, at the uh, anti-organized religion moves that he's taken. It's not only the Xinjiang Muslims, who after all are ethnically quite distinct from the Han, the as well. they're, they're, they're from the Chinese, it's the Hui Min, uh, who are indistinguishable from the Han. I mean, yes, they're classified as one of the national minorities, and we kind of sometimes, you know, if somebody's surname is Ma or Jin or Zhao, there might be a chance he's a, he's a Hui. These people have been there for more than a thousand years, and they're totally assimilated. And uh, now the campaign has gone to the point where uh, the halal butchers and uh, the snack shops in places like Beijing and other cities in the north, uh, the Arabic for halal has been painted out. Uh, and it's not just the Muslims, you know. Xi, for a while, you remember, was the party secretary of Zhejiang province, which has a large Christian, very often a fundamentalist or evangelical Christian community, places like Wanzhou and, and so on. And while he was party secretary there, she saw to the bulldozing of churches and the toppling of crosses and so on. And uh, now that he's sitting on the imperial throne, um, other large, what we call a house church, I guess, but congregations of a 1, thousand, 1,200, 1,500 people, many of them uh, Chinese who returned from study or work in the United States, these congregations have all been shut down and the pastors rounded up and sent off into who knows where. So he's, um, she's paranoia is very democratic in that sense. Um, I think that they are convinced that between um, the, the, the sort of tough, tough policies and the, and the people's armed police, or the party's armed police, really, that uh, force them, not the military, it's the Wujing who are out there. Um, and the surveillance, um, uh, just ubiquitous. I mean, I haven't been in Xinjiang in a long, 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 long time. But people who have traveled there, you're, you're never out of sight of a camera. And, uh, you've got Han Chinese moving in with, uh, with Uyghur families to, to basically check up on them. Um, I think they are convinced that they can keep this going for quite a long time. Uh, as they are convinced that money buys anything. Money can rent you friends if you want a new, uh, a new island uh, republic in the South Pacific and pull it away from Taiwan, well here's the check. Uh, that's, uh, every, everything has its price. You know, they're very transactional about that and I think they, they're confident that that they can keep the lid on this thing. I mean, you, what comes out in the Western press, this uh, German scholar, Zenz is his name, in, uh, in, in Berlin, who's, who's written about this. There's a uh, uh, Chinese-Canadian scholar in, 
in Toronto or someplace in Ontario who's uh, who's followed this and written very well on it. And I mean, just look at the big, well, there was this column in the Washington Post last week from Fred Hyatt with the before and after pictures of the cemetery of, of mosques that have become parking lots. There's a, a report released uh, last week. Yeah, yeah. So um, the question for me is why have not more Western governments um, uh, caught into this? Uh, why has not more been done? I mean, Radio Free, Radio Free Asia has done a lot of the reporting on this, and its Uyghur service is, is very, very active, and you hear stories, you don't hear stories, you see accounts, factual accounts of the relatives of the RFA Uyghur employees themselves being detained uh, as a result of their um, nieces or siblings, whoever they were, in employment with them. Um, with RFA. So um, uh, I, I think they're nothing if not arrogant about this, that is the regime is, and that they, um, I mean, I haven't lived in China now for more than two years, and I'm not sure that I would like to go back there and live again. But I lived there for a very long time, and certainly through the period of 2008, 2009, the beginnings of the global financial, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and all of that. And, with that, there came a kind of tremendous, um, like an injection of steroids into Chinese arrogance. The sense that, um, well, as the Liu Mingkang, the head of the Banking Commission, once said of Alan Greenspan, he said, "The teacher taught us all the all the wrong lessons. We know how to do things here." Uh, and the, where, where does that where does that lead? Well, it leads to Xi Jinping talking at the 19th Party Congress for three and a half hours about China's civilizing mission. China has an alternative set of models. Uh, there's a real, a real head of steam up about that. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if the, uh, you know, the wheel, of, the wheel of fortune turned the other way? And it, it may. I mean, we may have seen Xi Jinping at his, um, at his high point, but, you know, it ain't, it ain't there yet. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I wanted you to ask two questions. Yeah. So, uh, first, do you think China would invade Taiwan if it seeks independence? I have my military attaché right here who can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second question is, you ended your talk with, um, we didn't read this thing carefully enough, and we should have predicted the current leadership. I wonder, what's your prediction of the leadership style in the future, considering um, many young Chinese people well, to start with the second question, um, there, in a way, that should give us cause for optimism that um, you have all of these young Chinese who are abroad and many of whom return to China. Whether they actually move, these are not people who are likely to be rising up in the Communist Party system. Um, and if you look at the fates of people who in the 1980s, the first group of students who went abroad and then returned, think of Gao Xiqing, for example. Gao Xiqing, his last post was as the head of the um, Sovereign Fund, China Investment Corporation. Gao Xiqing studied in the United States. He has a law degree from Duke. He practiced law um, 
in New York, you know, on Wall Street, in Richard Nixon's old law firm. He was an adjunct professor at Duke for the longest time. And he rose through sort of the financial bureaucracy in China until he hit that glass ceiling, uh, which was that he, he, he was somehow unreliable. He'd somehow been tainted by his foreign exposure. Look at Egon, who is the governor of the central bank, very polished Anglophone guy, PhD, I think, from Indiana, taught there. Uh, but he's not, he's the governor of the central bank, but he's not the top guy. He's hit, he's hit the ceiling. There's, there's a kind of systemic mistrust of people who have that much foreign expertise. Now, maybe it will be got over with, uh, but I don't know of any who's moved beyond essentially the vice minister level. Um, I'm very curious to see the future of one person in particular. One of my friends is um, Jin Li Chun, uh, who's now the head of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. And Jin is a very, very polished guy who um, studied for a while in the UK. He collects rare editions of Shakespeare, which suggests he has a pretty good income. And um, being of the generation, he has one child, is his only daughter. And Miss Jin has a Harvard undergraduate degree and PhD and now teaches at the London School of Economics. And every so often um, writes op-ed pieces and appears at conferences, basically um, promoting the regime line, but she's a very, very effective spokeswoman at that. He's wonderfully polished, sort of Oxbridge English and, and so on. Well, I'm very curious to see what happens to Miss Chin. Is at some point, is she going to return and slide into, say, one of her dad's old jobs as a vice minister of finance, and then what will happen? So I'm just, I'm just not, for all of the human talent, and you are no doubt one of them, um, that are studying abroad and preparing or perhaps intending to go back to China, I just don't see uh, the party um, using using that in a sense. This is very unlike the national government, actually, uh, which didn't have those sorts of prejudices. And speaking of the national government brings us to Taiwan. And I suppose that if, if push came to shove and shove came to push and all the rest of it, uh, and Xi Jinping is now given a deadline, you know, 2049, the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic, as the date when Taiwan must be uh, returned to the motherland, whatever was really part of the motherland. Um, I can see the, a scenario where they might invade. I think they would avoid that absolutely at, at all costs and prefer much more subversive measures like buying off all of these uh, village leaders in southern Taiwan so that they will support the nationalist candidate in the presidential election, par for the course, hacking into the media and, and so on. It's, that, it's all of this United Front Work Department stuff, and plus the you know, even more clandestine um, activity that uh, they, they would rather, you know, this is Tsun's in the art of war. Why, uh, why fight if you can win without fighting kind of thing? So, yes, ma'am. Um, my question piggybacks her. So, are these 
party headliner, the children of these party headliners, are they being encouraged not to study abroad or not allowed? What's, what's happening there? Well, Xi's daughter, as you know, ended up at Harvard College for a while, although under what circumstances and what degree, she, she'd already graduated from a college in Zhejiang, so, and, then, and she's just vanished. Um, the, um, I mean, like all Chinese with a certain amount of money, uh, senior people in government and the party are looking to get their kids out. Right. And, um, and I don't think those kids are planning to go back. Mm. Um, there are those, you know, who, <laughs> who might form a, a sort of opposition force. I just saw where Bo Xilai's son, Bo Gua Gua, the, the playboy, um, he just finished Columbia Law School and has just passed his New York bar exam. So he's, you know, his mom was a lawyer. Uh, is he the nucleus of some uh, irredentist movement? I don't, I don't think so. I, um, I think in that sense, they're prepared to take the privileges that they that they can and get the kids, get the kids out and make sure they have enough, enough money. Um, and I know countless, countless people who are not Politburo Standing Committee members, but people who are heads of state banks, um, whose children have been educated here and have no intention ever of going, of going back. So it's a, it's a human talent pool that's not available uh, to China, which is tragic in its own, its own sense. It's not this group of people, which group of I think the clones of the current guys. I mean, I think the group, the cohort, I guess, that I know the best are the Chinese diplomats, the Foreign Service, because those are people that I dealt with all the time. I mean, I know the finance people and economic bureaucracy a little bit, but I've watched these younger Chinese diplomats, and um, they are nothing if not absolute conformists. I mean, you know the Chinese expression to Tian Pigu, um, and, um, and that's how you get ahead. There's no imagination, there's no, um, uh, how should you put it, there's, they're, 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 um, they're hardly iconoclastic, they do what they're told, and they tell headquarters, they, they report up the chain of command and they, and they tell the next layer up what they think the next layer wants to hear. Just like the economic bureaucrats uh, report up the numbers. You want 8%, I'll give you 8.5. That, that sort of thing. I just don't see them breaking out of those kinds of, the, the, the whole the, the sort of weight of the party corporate culture works against that. You don't, you don't find younger Chinese diplomats that you can, you know, the proverbial phrase, go for a walk in the woods. And there used to be people like that. They're all retired now. But you go off with somebody and you say, look, I know you have your masters and I have mine. But we have this problem here and how are we going to deal with this? And what do we need to say to, what do you need to say to get your old boys to accept it? And what do I need to say to get my old boys to accept it? And that's how you do the deal. You don't find people willing to do that anymore. I mean, think of, as, as a prime example of someone who you would wish had kind of broken out of the shell, but who has not, 
uh, is Jan Jitscher, who is now a, uh, a member of the Politburo and the senior foreign policy um, official in China and very much has Xi Jinping's ear. Um, so, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I've really enjoyed the talk. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you if you could help me understand that you're talking about the three transitional leaders who had uh, who lived in the Republic, who had uh, experienced a, uh, a liberal lifestyle, liberal education. Did they did they know what they were doing? Did they understand where they were leading their country? Did they? What what possesses a man to do something? Well, I think in some respect, and I knew Zhu really pretty well, John less so, Chen fairly well. I mean, not in the sense that we go out, well, I did with Zhu, I'd go, sort of go out for a drink with him. Um, but I think these were genuine Chinese patriots, uh, and they were not alone in that generation. I mean, look at the, the Chinese intellectuals who left uh, Peking University or Yanjing University and went out to Yan'an. Um, in the communist camp out there. Um, look at former, now deceased foreign minister Huang Hua. Uh, Huang Hua was the student of John Layton Stewart, the last ambassador in Nanking. Huang Hua was the student of John Layton Stewart. He joined the Communist Party. And when the communists took Nanking, uh, Huang Hua was sent to deal with John Layton Stewart <laughs> and all of the other foreign diplomats that were stuck in the nationalist capital. So it was a, it was a choice, you, you know, um, there, were, there were families um, uh, who literally um, split. Um, Yu Zhengsheng, who has just retired from the uh, Politburo, an old Shaoxing Mandarin family, he, he was a communist. Um, his uncle, Yu Dawei, was the Taiwan, the nationalist Chinese defense minister. So I think in the, in the I mean, I didn't, well, I lived in the 1940s, but not long enough to know. <laughs> um, I think you had this kind of competition of, uh, of ideas and, and ideals, and people saw, and many of them have written about it, saw the communists as, as a kind of um, vehicle for national salvation and saw the KMT, especially the group around Madame Tiang and, and her family as uh, absolutely corrupt uh, and uh, incapable of sort of uh, rejuvenating the, the nation. The communists looked, the, and, and, the, and the image they, well, Edgar Snow and all that, the Americans' Dixie mission in 1944 out to uh, to Yan'an, Colonel Barrett and uh, John Singleton Service and those people who were with him, they, uh, they took it, you know, here are all of these ardent revolutionaries in uh, homespun uh, tunics and they're out there living in the caves and uh, so on and so forth. Well, you know, uh, they didn't get there till 1944, but Mao had spent 1942 and 43 purging people, you know, it was the very first of the big um, rectification campaigns. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't get to see that. So, like, you know, there was a bit of suspension, what is it, Coleridge's phrase, a willing suspension of your own disbelief. Um, but 
Certainly, I think you know the, it, it, the sort of marketplace of ideas in the late 1940s. People people went all different ways. Do we do we have any indication of what any of these three men thought about the 70s? Well, some of them spent. I know Zhu Rongji did five years in a pigsty, um, or they went to the Wuxi Xiao, you know, the, the uh, May Seventh Cadre schools, or just kept their heads very uh, very low. Chen, I think, was. Uh, was used in a sense because while he had this Anglo-American education, he also in the in the early fifties went to Moscow uh, and um, took some sort of a ma Soviet master's degree there and had pretty good Russian and um, uh, you know he was I think he was with his language skills he was he was quite useful and stayed around but um, no I would love there's a point where I really had very much wanted to try to write a biography of Zhu Rongji, with whom I spent many, many hours and knew his family and his immediate staff and all of that. And there's absolutely no way they were going to they were going to let that happen. He's a fascinating character, you know, who, as um, uh, I said, ironic, a wonderful, self-deprecating sense of humor. Sometimes his emotions very close to the surface. But also quite ruthless. I mean, something like eleven thousand people were executed under one of his anti-corruption campaigns. Um, so to you know to, to have spent time uh, uh, talking to that sort of guy, figure where where was he? What was he thinking when he was off in the, uh, growing rocks or whatever he was doing? It'd be very interesting. But you know, what you need is a sort of Eric Erickson who can do for one of these guys what he did for. Luther or Gandhi, you know, to try to write a sort of psychobiography, it'd be be fascinating. Thanks, sir. Yeah. Oh, Larry, you're the. You're no, no <laughs> you talked about the uh, the students uh, going abroad, you know, for higher education. Does that get them out of sort of the patronage patronage networks and maybe protect them from, you know, some of the. Uh, I think to some extent it does. It, um, they're out of the network, and they're out of the network. That is, they may not they may not be tarred with a brush that came close to the old man. Um, on the other hand, they're never going to make a career back home. I mean, and especially kids who leave younger, you leave at um, well now in high school or undergraduate education. Um, there's no way. Even even if mom and mom or dad were not uh, some senior uh, or rising uh, party cadre, there's no way that those kids are ever going to be able really to make a living in China. I mean, you read my or my obituary was read out to you, and we had this research company there, and we hired we'd had on staff a few of these young people who had returned. And the only place they could find a job was with a company like ours, where their English language skills and their and their sort of critical intelligence um, could be, uh, you know, could be rewarded, uh, really. Uh, but they would they wouldn't find their way into the you know the Bank of China or uh, uh, China Telecom, and they probably wouldn't want to be there anyway. So. Yes, ma'am. Um, do you think the fact that she will now be is, has named himself the leader till whatever? Do you yeah. think that will harm the potential to keep 
the standard of the ranks incoming? Because I think very much so. Yeah. I think it's so retrograde. They don't need another person for, you know. Well, I mean, we, I mean we'll years. see in 2022 when what is he's now in his second term. And, and nominally, you know, that should have been the end of it. And we'll see if at that point there isn't some successor in the, in the wings. I mean, there's just speculation about this guy, Chaminar. Who is the party secretary in Chongqing as a as a possible uh, successor to him? But I think the whole uh, Xi's having uh, engineered this re removal of term limits, um, having conducted the sort of anti-corruption campaign that he had, having built this uh, personality cult around himself, having essentially um, uh, chucked the whole collective leadership that had been in place since. 1980 or so. I mean, he started out his term by by creating these so-called Lingdao Xiaozu, you know, the sort of small working groups. And before no, long, he had 13 or 14 of them, and he was chairman of them all. He became chairman of everything. Um, well, that really robbed people of incentive, and um, uh, people who go to China and take part in academic conferences and whatnot find that the atmosphere is really uh, really stifling, whereas uh, six, seven years ago you'd be in a conference and people around the table, everybody would be speaking. Now just one person speaks and, uh, and everyone defers usually to him. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's, it's impoverished what was already not a very rich uh, party culture. Yeah. Yes, sir, in the, in the back there. Yeah, building off of that question. On the surface, she appears to be ascendant until Pluto's until he's not. <laughs> right. Uh, what factors could lead to maybe uh, the Shanghai Gang re reforming and um, or different factions forming to oppose Xi? Are these domestic yeah. things, economic trouble, Hong Kong, Xinjiang? I think. Uh, I mean, the sort of generic, the generic. Um, weakness is dissension within the top leadership. What might cause that? Any one of the things that you've mentioned. Uh, did you mention African swine fever? Uh, but that's, I mean, I think that's really a very big deal. I mean, you've seen the inflation numbers come out. It's not only pumped up um, food price inflation, but it comes perilously close to being a regime-threatening sort of um, uh, pandemic. She certainly has um, lots of silent enemies and detractors who are waiting for him to stumble. Um, whether they could pull together a kind of uh, resistance and move him out, I, I think it would be very difficult to organize. I mean, she has been very careful. Uh, he's a very shrewd character, obviously, in, um, but he's been very careful in moving people within the military ranks, certainly within the within the security apparatus, and uh, given them both essentially uh, blank checks, you might have remarked if you if you if you watched the glorious pageant that was the 70th anniversary parade, um, and they had up there on the Tiananmen rostrum the current leadership, and bless you, Roy, and and. Um, all of those who were mobile enough to, to turn out, um, except for one, and that was Zhu Rongji. And people said, well, maybe he's got the flu or something. 
Zhu Rongji was online that whole time. He was writing stuff. He was writing on the, the Tsinghua, um, the business school's website. And uh, to me, you know, that's like the, the, the absence in a Zen painting. What you don't see, what's not there is the most important piece. And I, I can easily imagine Zhu Rongji first absolutely um, re repel is a, maybe a word to, at, at how, what, how, she, how she has kind of retrogressed on the party political side. Uh, abandoning this collective leadership and arrogating so much power to himself, but also what he's done on the economic side. I mean, the whole, the, the, the deal with Jew was that you'd, you'd bring in all of this foreign presence in the economy and you'd basically kick the ass of sluggish state enterprises. You'd give them some competition and meanwhile you'd go about breaking these enterprises up and hiving off what you could and, well, she has said all of that absolutely in reverse. I mean, just last week there came the news that the two shipbuilding companies, which had been spun out of an old shipbuilding ministry back in the 1990s, they've now been reunited. And the, the, um, uh, the, the, the lingo used is always that you'll get economies of scale and these are going to be globally competitive companies and, and so on. But what they're going to be is just another big bloated, state enterprise and uh, at the same time you know she has very much stressed the, the presence of the party in all of this that all enterprises including foreign enterprises are you know mandated to have active party committees and in state enterprises the the parties this party secretary ceo chairman uh, roles have in many cases been merged even if the party secretary is not a particularly expert um, expert manager. And this is also a kind of deadening, deadening hand there. So, so uh, Drew, I'm, I'm, I'm sure his absence from that um, parade was a sign of his uh, disapproval of how she had gone out. There are lots of people, uh, Jews, acolytes are still all around. Um, but he's not, Jew is never leading, never led a faction the way Jiang and his Shanghai gang did. He just isn't that kind of a politician. And I don't see him pulling people together, and, you know, in a kind of coup d'etat sort of thing. So, yes, sir, in front of... Uh, to dovetail off this topic, uh, from a military perspective, are many of the leaders in the senior leadership in the, in the PLA and other elements of their military, are they cut from the same cloth, like mentality speaking, as Xi Jinping and all these other leaders are? Um, are they very much at the beck and call of the party, or are there factional leaders within who may actually end up fracturing should Xi Jinping stumble or any of these other yeah. events happen? I can't well, I think, I think my, my colleague Roy, who's an expert on the PLA, should really answer to that. But uh, um, And to escalate that question, uh -oh, should, something escalate. <laughs> should something go wrong, and while I'm not saying it would happen literally again, but could we see something that kind of rhymes with the instability of China during the interwar years, the war war era, and stuff like that? Could that kind of thing ever return? I suppose theoretically. I mean, I think Roy is really the expert here, but my distant impression on, on that is that one of the motives of Xi's reorganizing the military into theater commands and actually, and, and more profound than, than that, was in fact to 
uh, sort of mitigate some of the dangers of war lordism. I mean, the, the old military regions um, you had been in, in many ways kind of the, the seats of that of a possible um, new warlord movement. But 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 uh, she and his and, and his two predecessors, Hu and um, and uh, and Zhang, uh, both took pains to put their own people in. Uh, in senior military roles, and of course, one of the very first things that she she did when the anti-corruption campaign uh, was launched was to take down all of these senior, fifty-some uh, flag officers, if not, if not more, uh, and put his own uh, people in there. So I don't know, Roy, would you care to speak more to that? Roy is the president of the National Bureau of Asian Research, and a. Army attaché in Embassy Beijing. It is the case that the senior military leaders find their identity first in their party status and then in their military rank or specialization. And so uh, to that extent, and, and you can almost predict who the top leaders will be or, or who they will be drawn from by examining the, the roster of military leaders that are on the Central Committee 10 years before. Uh, so I, I agree with Bill that they are very political. They are very risk averse because they've endured this this anti-corruption campaign, the current version, and now it's up to seventy-two general officers or flag oh, officers that have been purged, including uh, the the two uh, vice chairmen of the military commission who were both uh, taken down some years ago. So um, I don't know that they would be the, the PLA as an entity or even PLA officers uh, individually are a source of what you might think of as the building blocks for a factional movement. Um, they're just, they as an institution, as I mentioned, they're Denny's, they're party members, and they've been so purged that I just don't, uh, apart from the folks that maybe are, uh, you know, banding together in prison, uh, <laughs> I, I just don't see yeah, that as, as a source of where this might come from. To your point about warlordism, it's, it's absolutely the case that the party fears um, the degree to which military leaders in the far-flung regions of China could, could actually undertake such behavior. That's why it's all long been the case. It's accentuated during the transition to the military commands, but it's always been the case that the top leader in a military region um, had to have spent his career in a different region prior to taking that top job. So in many cases, you've had officers spend 35 years in one part of China and then parachute in literally to another region to be the top commander or, or commissar. As Ed Roy suggests, the army remains the party's army, of course. It's not a national defense force. Oh, you got time for one oh more. I have time for well then. <laughs> there's no question who's going to ask the question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Bill, may I ask you, um, you've, you've implied this in some ways, but to what extent does the party enjoy the kind of party discipline that it would like to see? There have mm. been these purges because of corruption, Purges in order to make sure that uh, there are loyal cadres who are loyal to the respective leaders. Uh, conformity seems to be the secret of one 
its success in so many different enterprises. Uh, but uh, you know, corruption was one of the principal reasons for the, the, the breakdown of party discipline in the Soviet Union, mm. uh, and, 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 and the reason for uh, you know, Gorbachev and, I, and, and, and Andropov's ideological purification campaigns. And, and so, uh, in, in the case of the Soviet Union, the party leadership was between a rock and a hard place. And, and I'm just wondering, I, I know that these are apples and oranges, but I'm just wondering, you know, it is a communist system where... And it's a Leninist party. It is a Leninist party, you yes. Know. I mean, I think that um, a hell of a lot of petty corruption still goes on. I mean, she has um, preached this sort of abstemious, um, uh, as you call it, a kind of party lifestyle. And in public gatherings and so on, it is whatever that was, four dishes and a soup sort of thing. You know, no big extravagant displays of flowers and, and all of that, the sort of parsimonious, thrifty side, if you will. For um, party people who do not have a finger in economic activity of one sort or another, the opportunities for corruption are probably not so many as they once were. And these people have also learned how they can keep their heads down and pay lip service. You, you know, now what's going on across the party um, apparatus in China. There's just been a couple of weeks ago the uh, fourth plenum of the current Central Committee. And of course, uh, appropriately enough on Halloween, it issued its communique. Uh, and so all down the party chain of command, party secretaries are doing what they call in Chinese transmitting the spirit of the communique, which is just giving, you, you see these pictures on Chinese TV, all these guys sitting around in their white shirts and black jackets and they're writing furiously uh, in their notebooks and then they go, all go back to their own uh, work units and they convene a meeting and all their subordinates do the same thing. But that's all just, it's, it, it, it's formalism. Um, as, as for people who are operating the, the economy or anything to do with the economy, the, well, the railway ministry used to be famously corrupt. The railway ministry was abolished, but it's, and it's now a private company, but it's all the same guys, except, except for the ones who are in jail. They just changed their name cards. Um, and uh, procurement, uh, kickbacks, all of that stuff continues to go on at, I think, probably smaller scale. Um, you know, the general, one of the vice chairs of the military commission, whom Roy alluded, I think when they finally got him, didn't they send a convoy of army trucks and cleaned out his, cleaned out his basement and they took out gold bars and, and um, uh, you know, Rolex watches and, and bound up Franklins and the whole, uh, a lot of Benjamins over there. I, that sort of egregious stuff I don't think is, goes on, at least not so much in the Chinese mainland. Although, you know the shenanigans that still happen in the in the banking and financial system, uh, with the ownership of, in, of shares in state corporations and so on. Um, it's better disguised, but I'm convinced it continues to 
uh, to happen. And I mean, some of the corruption at local levels may actually be benign in a sense. I mean, if you're a local party secretary, you you know, so you're the party secretary of, let's say, a city of a million people in the Yangtze Delta. That's a pretty prosperous place on the whole, and you have a lot of private enterprise going on there. But you keep getting these directives from Beijing. You've got to have four new hospitals this year and six new elementary schools and so on. You've got to meet this target, and to your point, meet this number and that number. And these guys, they don't. They can't do it. So they go around, they put the squeeze on individual companies. Could you pay your taxes two years in advance? And then they set up these financing financing uh, vehicles and they borrow against um, land auctions five years down the line and, and, um, and so on. That's a kind of bureaucratic uh, corruption. They may not be benefiting um, financially themselves, but they're getting good report cards for having uh, having done it. So I think that that kind of stuff still have. I thought, you know, in the in the absence of a, of a free press and the sort of the, uh, the the bright the bright lights of real media glooming looking in on these people, I just don't see how. I mean, she's she's anti-corruption campaign has been more profound than anything that went before it. But it's still a party purge, and uh, it would have to be just cyclical. There's no way they can, there's no sort of self-enforcing mechanism within the party for for doing that, I don't think. So there you are. So thank you all very much.